This is Coach Lou Holtz, and you're listening to Building Championship Mindsets, the podcast with Dr. Amber Selkie, from the locker room to the boardroom. Dr. Amber is the best in the business at helping you and your team build the mindset that drive results. So lock in. If you can take just one thing away from today and implement it into your life, I know you'll be a better person and a better leader, coach, athlete, parent, or spouse because of it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Building Championship Mindsets, the podcast. I am your host, Dr. Amber Selking, and we are in season three, which is entitled Lead to Win. Today, I am thrilled to introduce you to our featured guest today, Vice Chairman of NetApp, Mr. Tom Mendoza. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amber. Happy to be here. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to have you. So Tom comes and speaks to my HR class every semester, and being the Tom Mendoza of the Mendoza College of Business, it always uh, enthralls, I think, our students to see, wow, a man of his caliber in terms of leadership and position in the world and at Notre Dame and in business in general, takes the time to be with us and impart his wisdom. And so, you know, again, the, the opportunity to have you on today is really exciting, Tom. Thank you. I have to say it's my pleasure to do the... Uh the talks with the classes, and I'm always thrilled at the, the feedback from the students. They get seem to get stuff out of it. It's great. Yeah, it's it's always fun. And when they're done, they're like, oh, my God, that was actually Tom Mendoza. <laughs> so we love it. So, Tom, Vice Chairman of NetApp, tell us a little bit more about NetApp and your role within the company. So I helped start NetApp. I've been here from the beginning, I should say. A couple of people found that if I started here in uh, 1994, revenue was $600,000 and today we're a Fortune 500. Uh, as an aside, I ran sales for six years. I was president for eight. I've been vice chairman since 2009. But I opened the NASDAQ on the 20th anniversary of us going public, which was a couple of years ago. And the president of I, I opened it on the day we went public, which was November 21st. Happened to be my birthday. Great gift. Awesome. Then uh, 1995, then the 10-year, but the 20-year. And the president of the NASDAQ said to me, for whatever it's worth, less than 15% of all companies that have ever listed on the NASDAQ have had a 20th. Wow. So it's kind of, kind of astounding. Something's going on right that you're able to sustain. When you think about all the things that happen in tech, to create a company, to we went from zero to a billion our first six years. It's one of the great rides in the history of tech. Uh, we went through the dot-com bubble. 70% of our business was tech or internet, so we we're more threatened than anybody. A lot of people quit on us, meaning outsiders saying they'll never come back. Uh, we fought our way back. We then grew from two to five billion wow. in about five years organically. And in the last two years, uh, after going flat for about three years, our business was disrupted. Our industry was disrupted by cloud computing. We've done a spectacular job of transformation. In fact, the number one class of Stanford Business School strategy now is on our current transformation. Wow. But we now, the stock was $21 two years ago, December, which would have been 2015, and it's $60 as we sit here today. So to continually fight back, create, change strategy is a, an art form. And, I, and I, I know we're going to talk a little bit about culture, but I've always believed the fact that the culture of the company 
has proven vibrant in good and bad times is why we have get to have this conversation today. Yeah, and Tom, I think that's just fascinating, right? The explosive growth that you experienced financially, but then also, like you said, the ability to navigate all these fluctuations in the marketplace and a lot of these external factors. To what do you attribute your ability, again, to knock that out from the financial perspective, but to navigate just the volatility of a marketplace that you're in? If I could take it in phases, that the the phase one was get off the ground. How how do you get a company off the ground? And that first year was still the hardest. As I mentioned, we were 600 grand in revenue. Two months in, we had to do 16 million. As I like to say, we were, they were kind of had a, then a miracle happens part of the strategy. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, we hired very well. So I, I was hired in May. The CEO, Dan Warman, over, and he and I were a team for 15 plus years as president and CEO. Um, you know, he backed me right out of the shoot. He told me, he called me. I was in Dallas, Texas when he got the job. And he says, Tom, are you a football fan? I said, yeah. He says, you're going to be my Emmett Smith. I'm going to give you the ball to you. You can't run with it. You tell me when you can't run anymore. And so I had never had anybody just say, you tell us what you need. We're going to back you. He did that. So that's an important thing early on. We hired well in all fat. The main thing is we hired well in engineering and we hired very well in sales. Of the first 10 hires I made, eight stayed five years or longer. Most stayed wow. 10 years. So we didn't make hiring mistakes. We had tremendous focus. First of all, our product fit. It fit a problem. We knew what it was. We had a good value prop. But secondarily, that was software development as an aside. When the internet happened, we saw an opportunity to become the dominant force of storing information for the internet, and we, we did it. And so we were flexible enough to take advantage of an opportunity. We were willing to bet and change our business model for what we believed in. So zero to a billion. We went 250 million to a billion in two years. Wow. Hard to describe. That was 98 to 2000. So that, the reason that all happened, I think, was leadership willing to bet, understood the business, and the company was willing to follow. If we said go right, everybody went right. It was just, because you have to be an execution machine when you're that small. Exactly. So I want to back up to, I read actually a story that you posted on LinkedIn the other day, and I sent it to a couple of my coaches because I thought it was powerful when you were telling the story of, of your boss that was like, is this yeah. going to work, right? <laughs> do, do you believe this will work? Yeah. And well, and he said, okay, let's go, right? And, and so tell us what that was like for you, because now you're in that leadership role, but what was it like to have a leader instill that type of confidence and support in you at that time? Well, the, to review that, so our chairman of the board is a guy named Don Valentine, the most famous venture capitalist in history. He founded Sequoia Capital. Okay. So he he started venture capital. He's our chairman. This is the first board meeting for the new CEO with Don Valentine, who'd only been on board 60 days. You want to make a good impression. <laughs> right. I'm coming in. They say, we'd like your next 12-month forecast. We're only six months old. We'd like to know your next 12-month forecast, Right. Right. So, and so it was like from here, from something to a lot. And so Dan, just before he walks in, he has that uncertain moment. And he turns to me and says, Tom, how sure are you of this forecast? I said, well, Dan, it's based upon people we haven't hired yet, some of the people they haven't met yet. He looks at me and he goes, after a little bit of a stunned silence, because what I'm saying makes sense, but it's still scary. Exactly. He said, is there anything you would do different? I said, no. He said, you believe you can make that happen? I said, I do. We walked in, and I'm telling him, he just said, I believe in this plan. Me and Tom will make this plan happen. And 
I relayed that to my team. I said, this company's banking on us. Let me share one other story with you that goes with this. So we did great. We got it off the ground. And then we had an opportunity to go public in 95. Okay. We, just, we were profitable, but still small. But we had the window was open. And we always viewed the IPO as nothing more than a funding event. Okay. A lot of people do this very, very wrong. They look at it as an endpoint. We always thought we were going to do something special. And so the night before, we had already made all our goals, U.S. and globally. And Dan called me up, and I ran the U.S. at that time. And he said, Tom, if we could sell a certain amount, which would have been the most in the history of the company tomorrow, we can go public. Now, I can't tell my team that. He said, now, if you can't, I understand. But with these windows open and closed, I put a voicemail out, and that's how we used to do it at that time, a different technology. And I said, you know to my team that I believe in a balance of life and work. Tomorrow's not that day. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in it in general. Right. But and tomorrow, a macro level not, balance. Yeah, macro level. <laughs> tomorrow is not that day. And I said... And I felt like I had earned the right because I had been in front of the customers. I flew like crazy. I never flew under 250,000 miles my first 20 years at NetApp. I had done my part, and now is my time to ask. And I said, tomorrow, I don't care if your kids got Little League, if it's your wife's birthday or your husband's birthday. And I don't want you to do anything unnatural, but what I am asking is you do whatever you can to bring in whatever revenue you can tomorrow. And I want to make it a special day. And I hung that phone up. And end up, we, we did it, and we went public, but that wasn't the thing that I'll always remember. I remember hanging that phone up and have a moment of complete serenity that they would, they would do anything possible because we were in it together. And that is a powerful thing. And I thought I had earned that right, and they told me later, you know, if you ask, we'll do. And it's, again, I think it's very important as a leader and a person that you earn the right to ask. Yeah. It's not because you have a title. Right. A lot of, otherwise, you're being ordered. That's very different. The most powerful driver, I believe, to motivate people is, is if you have that feeling, you do it because you just don't want to let someone down. Yeah. You know, I, I posted something today. Today would have been uh, my dad's 92nd birthday. He passed 14 years ago. And he was the most that. influential person in my life. It, it, I just think a lot about him today. But, but he... He gave me that feeling about you got to treat people with respect. You got to give everything you can. And then when you ask back, and so that's how I felt about him. You know, when I went to college, I went to Notre Dame. When I got a job, I would do anything not to let him down. Right. So if I could do it, I'd do it. If he asked me to do it, I'd do it. That's what I try to get people to feel. And the only way I know how to do that is being very personal, being very real, and helping them at the point of attack. So, so when you ask back, they go, I'm in. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the fascinating thing there, you mentioned, you know, your kid's little league or, or your wife's birthday. The, the beautiful part about, I think, excellent leadership is that those kids and those wives know who you are and that every other day prior to that, you have supported and challenged and loved their family. And, and yep. that's a collective affair to be able to support on, on big efforts like that. And so I just wanted to highlight that because I think, you know, it's very easy to think, oh, a wife wouldn't understand. But if, if it's that long of your support, she does, you know, and, and I think then the whole team is behind you and that's that's a powerful concept for leaders to really understand yeah i think no one took it as harsh they took they took it as i had never really asked them to really i'm talking one day 
right. till Friday, and I couldn't say why. They know I, they knew we were a private company, but I said this, and it wasn't important to me. It was important to the company, is what I said, for us to do whatever we can tomorrow to help. And oh, by the way. As I mentioned, I ran North America. We were 90-something percent of the company's revenue, and we were way over goal. Right. So there was, no money, there was no money in it to do it tomorrow. It wasn't like if we do it tomorrow, you get extra commission. I just I felt I had the right to ask. That's really awesome. They, so I, you know, you know the other side of that, Amber, you want to be the person that gets that ask. I always want, as an employee, I want to be the person they call like that. Yeah, that's, that's true. They count on you. That's special. So I think that leads us great into sort of this next general question and, and add more. I think we've started to understand your leadership philosophy, but add some more flesh around what is your leadership philosophy, Tom, as you go about leading, you know, your family, this big organization? I think it spans all of those spaces. Yeah, I think, number one, I've always viewed myself as a captain of the team, not the owner of the franchise. Oh, well, like, ex- franchise. Explain that to, you, to us. Well, the owner of the franchise, think about Let's use the Yankees locally. You watch the owner up in his box looking down. You have Derek Jeter on the field. Jeter's out there trying to help you win. He's not sitting upstairs evaluating whether I should trade you or not. And, I, and I've always believed that you have to be on the field playing with you guys. You've got to be in front of the customer. You have to be in front of your people. So when you make a call, whether it's a personnel call or anything else, you do it because you, you know from having experience, not sitting in the home office making calls on a board. The, the leadership saying, which is driven or embodies what I believe, is people don't care what you know unless they know that you care. They Amen. just don't. Yeah. And so if, if you know I care about you and I care about your family and I, I, I know that you have kids and I know you have troubles, whatever they are, you know, we've had people with autistic kids and all this kind of stuff, and you take the time to know that and help. Yeah. Uh, when you ask back, They'll do almost, people feel respected and appreciated to do almost anything. That's the essence of what I believe in culture and leadership. And so when I ask people, people don't care what you don't, let's know what you care. I get asked to speak to a lot of companies. I'll say, exclusive of pay, tell me how you show people you care. I won't say the company, there's a Fortune 10 asked me to speak, and uh, everybody went dead silent. And they couldn't come up with anything. Wow. And they and they said, you know, I don't think it's fair to take pay out of it. I said, I, I think you're wrong. I said, pay is part of the deal. But if you can't, you don't show people you appreciate them at all. They're, then when they get off at 5 o'clock, they're going to get on a bike and go somewhere. They're not going to be thinking of how to help your company. You haven't earned that right. So that's, I'm not, you know, I've always believed and known you can treat people poorly and succeed. It's been proven by a lot of companies. What I also believe is you can treat people with respect and dignity and run a great company. That's what we've tried to prove here at NetApp. I absolutely love that because I do think a lot of people think it's one or the other, right? You operate cruelly and then you receive profit and or you're a, the good guy and a good company and, you know, you flounder in that area. And and that's why I, I want to have individuals like you on this show because I think this is a huge shift in our leadership framework that needs to happen in every organization across the business. I mean, people spend a majority of their life and day at work. And I saw an interesting statistic from the American Heart Association that said your boss has a greater impact on your physical 
physical health than your actual doctor does. And, because that's where you are every day, you know, and the thoughts and the emotions that. and the stress and the physiological reaction and everything that we know from a, a human psychology standpoint, right, is that when we're in the presence of other people and there's that connection that happens, you know, it shifts our hormonal responses, it shifts our engagement levels. And so it's fascinating to be able to look at individuals like yourself in an industry like the tech world, right, that is still operating on this people to people basis. So it, it's powerful. And I love seeing that. Let me give you another philosophy that I actually learned from Don Valentine. Yeah, I came in one time, he asked me to come speak at a board meeting. We were killing it. I thought I was going to have like the palm leaves and stuff. <laughs> he, had, he had said to me, just stay in the field. You don't need to come to board meetings. We were killing it. And uh, they want me at the board meeting. I'm thinking, great. I walk in and uh, the CFO hands me this slide. He says, Don likes to start with the slide. I don't know anything about this slide. I put it down and I go, well, as you can see, we're doing well. And I, I only had a half hour. I was just going to talk about, you know, here's, here's our numbers and here's what we're doing way, way above. How hard can this be? And Don goes, whoa, 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 what about that bucket there? It was called deferred revenue. He goes, what's in that? I go, I don't know. He goes, you don't know. No, I don't know. I felt like saying I don't care either. At the end of the day, I'm here talking about sales. Well, that proctology exam lasted for 30 minutes. He never got off that slide. I was I was so pissed off. And I, I'm like, so now he goes, well, time's up. Oh, time's up. We never even got to when I, when I flew in. I left there so weird. And a guy named Doug Leone, who now runs Sequoia Capital. Doug's a legend in Silicon Valley. He's the top guy at Sequoia. Comes running down the hall. Because Tom, you didn't like that meeting, did you? I said, boy, that Stanford education wasn't wasted on you, Doug. <laughs> oh, man. He goes, I, I want to kill somebody. And he goes, what do you think Don was doing there? I said, I have no idea. He says, Tom, when Don joined the company, how are things going? I said, things are pretty tough. He said, that's right. And how did Don treat you? I said, he's very, very helpful and supportive. Right. How are things going now? I said, we're killing it. He says, don't you think Don knows that? Don't you think he reads the board? Let me help you here. Don believes when times are tough, you support. And when times are good, you inject tension. Because the, num the number one killer of companies is complacency. So he said, get used to it. He's never going to leave you complacent. And I have done that my entire career. So when I see somebody really killing it, I find ways to raise the bar. I, I love find that. Guys at $3 million goal, he's at six. I say, why, didn't you, why do you think you didn't do eight? They're like, Whoa, what? You know what? They come back to me and say, I think I could have done eight. That's what I'm trying to get to. How do I expand your mind to what's possible as opposed to you sitting there? Because what happens otherwise, you, well, let's face it. If you had to look at most companies that were doing great and then got destroyed, Sun Micro, there's a long list of tech. Right. You ask the employees, what was the single thing that killed them? They'll say complacency. People were no longer ready to make change. They thought things were good enough. And our industry moves so fast. If you're complacent, you're dead. So that is by one thing to share with people to keep in mind. I think that's a good nugget. Yeah, no, I think that's really powerful. And so later on in the season, we're actually going to talk about one of our pillars of leadership is continuous growth and the importance of that uh, for, for the individual level and, you know, at the corporate and strategic level. So my question for you, if you could flesh out a little bit for our leaders is how do you inject this um, tension, right, and, and uh, pressure, good pressure towards continuous growth while still 
appreciating your people in the process, right? So that it doesn't come off of like, good Lord, I can't do anything good enough for this guy. So how, what, how do you balance that as a leader? How, what's, your, how, what's your thought uh, process around that? Yeah, let me give you a Lou Holtz story. I went to a, a Notre Dame practice. They were playing Ohio State. Ohio State was loaded. And Notre Dame ended up losing right at the end. Ohio State was absolutely loaded. Eddie George was their star. He won the Heisman. And I went to a practice. They were practicing onside kicks. Only time I've ever been to a Lou Holtz practice. And they kicked it to a guy. And so if the ball goes high, you're supposed to let it go. If the ball goes low, you jump on it. ball goes high, the guy tries to catch it, bounces off, and Lou Holtz goes crazy. I mean... It went from a nice practice to tense, like, and Lou Holtz, I, I mean, how stupid can you be? Kick it to him again. And the whole place like, oh, my God. Now they kick it low, and the guy lets it go. And Lou Holtz says, Coach Shamil, who's at a recruiting, what state is he from? Missouri. I don't want any more kids from Missouri. They're too stupid to play for the University of Notre Dame now. Everybody's like, oh, my God. He says, kick it to him again. That's the third time. Okay. The third time they kick it to him. Goes low. He dives on it, makes the play. Lou Holtz runs 40 yards across the field slides on his knees, goes up and down with his hands, puts his arm around him. Everybody cheered. Why do I tell that story? Because he made everybody knows what to do on an onside kick after that. But the key is he lifted him back up. Oh, yeah. So so I think, I think number one, people who are t- trying to achieve greatness, so we're trying to achieve greatness as a company, know they're going to be challenged. They want to be challenged. So you appreciate what they're doing. But you got to point out how they can do better. And you really got to meet it. Look, we can go here. You put it within the context of what we're trying to achieve as a team. You make sure they know that what, what they are doing, that's right. But then you tell them why we need more and what you need more of. And I think the right kind of people want that. They want to be driven because greatness doesn't happen by everybody doing okay. A- amen happen- to that. Something extraordinary. And so I think, again, that touches on that point that you made earlier of we hired well. Right. We, we made the right hiring decisions. And when you hire well and you recruit well and you put the right people in those places that do match and align with your values, then they do want pushed. Right. And they have that same vision. And so I think that's fascinating. You know, NetApp, NetApp you know, is. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Let me just say, because I just was thinking a lot about this recently. I think it's very important. One of the things that's powerful about what we did right about culture is we're explicit about what it was. So we say we, we want people attitudes. Number one, we want you to be candid. We want people to, to celebrate the goodness in each other, not just look at the problems. If you have a problem, come with the answer. We want you to embrace change. And we want we'll focus on leadership rather than management. And we would have that talk with people in the interview process. And two people hearing the same message would say, this is for me and this is not. Either way, they're right. So if you can be explicit in your hiring and you also use it in your measurement of your own people. Say, how are we doing against these? You know, values are important. Culture is the behavior you witness every day. Absolutely. Values go up on a wall a lot of times. They should re- culture should reflect those values. The moment you don't act to what that says, it doesn't matter what you say after that. It's what do you act to? So when I would interview people, I would tell them exactly what we believed in. And as I say, some people would go, I feel like I'm home. And yeah. other people go, this is not for me. So our, our retention rate was much higher because I never anybody come to me and go, boy, it's completely different than you said it was. Right, right. I tell them. Yeah, and I think that that whole piece that you said there, too, about the behaviors that this, those values embody. Talk to us more about how you convey that to your people in terms of actually generating the, the culture that you have at NetApp. I'll give you a couple of examples. So, so number one, 
when I lived in Sunnyvale, I used to every single day go down to the cafeteria. I'd look around the room to people I didn't know and I'd sit down and eat. And everybody would go. And so many people say, it's amazing how many people you know. And that, that's because I take the time to go find them. So wait, tell us what position were you in in that, um, in, in that segment? And then who were you interacting present. with? Okay. Everybody. Manufacturing guys. Anybody who happens to sit at a table. There's no... But, you know, some people have these executive eating rooms, executive parking where they separate themselves. I never believed in that. So I would just sit down. I say, tell me what you do. Tell me about yourself. I find out they have kids. And normal conversation, but people now get you. So I spoke at every single All Hands, which was done once a quarter. I used to do, back in the day, I did uh, CDs every month called Tom Talks where I, because we were growing so fast. People could pop it in their cars and listen to it. And I would interview different people in the company. I'd interview customers, and I'd close up my thoughts on what we need to do better, how we lift that bar. So I always tried to make sure that the communication was as open as possible. Let me tell you a life lesson I learned on this topic. Um, I had a guy I hired in 1999 to run Israel. And he was kind of an Israeli legend, wing commander in the Six-Day War, very powerful guy. And he did a fabulous job for 10 years and then retired. And they called me and they said, Tom, are you, could you do a video for Shlomo's retirement? And I said, absolutely. Me and the two founders did it. And he was retiring on a Monday. I was going to be at Notre Dame that Saturday for a football game. And I'm telling the story Saturday night, South Bend, Indiana, to a group of people. And one of the guys said, did you ever think of going to Israel to be at his retirement? I went, oh, it's Monday. The moment I said it, I was embarrassed. Wow. And I called my admin and I said, is there any way? And I had to be back in Northern California on Wednesday for a CEO staff meeting. And I said, is there any way that I could fly to Israel, make it in time, and make it back to the CEO's meeting? She, she calls me back. She goes, this is really ugly. I said, I'm not asking you that. Yeah. Long story short, I flew back to New York on Sunday, spent two hours at the airport, got on a plane to Israel. This guy's son ran security at the airport. was a very good, helpful thing. They, they <laughs> shot me through security. I took a quick shower. I got this arena with 500 people, all kinds of people, from Israeli intelligence all the way to everybody. And if the, the uh, screen was down, I was speaking on the screen. It was my wow. video. And that screen went up, and I was standing there. I will never forget that moment. And as a side, I had an 8 a.m. flight to Northern California. I landed at 7 at 5 p.m. I was there at 7. I had an 8 a.m. plane to California. It was one of the, I laughed so hard on that flight, I thought that was the coolest thing I've ever done. Physical presence. They knew how hard it was. I flew to India yeah. once. I spoke in front of 10,000 people in two days. Through Dubai to India, 24 hours each way. I was at two days. To this day, they talk about what could they do for us. Physical presence. making it, Doing the hard thing, but showing up and leading from the front. Big deal. That's huge. And and so so flush more about this culture thing. So it's awesome because you're our first guest, right? And so everything that you've been touching on is really teeing us up for a really powerful, you know, if again, as you're listening to this episode, I want you to be, this is going to prep you for everything that you hear throughout the course of season three. We've talked about continuous improvement. We're going to talk about vision and culture and leadership. And that's the culture piece is really the piece that you talk a lot to our HR class about. And so 
you know, what what are some of the importance or the critical reasons why you believe in corporate culture? And and why do you think it's so important for teams and organizations to be really intentional about that piece? I I think corporate culture is the you want people to do things because they want to do them, not because they're ordered to do them. Think of anything you do where you are, you feel empowered to do it and you feel good about it. You, you approach it 100% differently than if someone says, oh, by the way, I want you to do this tomorrow. Okay. There's no ownership to it. So when we started the company, we said, what is it that we're going to try to do? Right at the beginning, when Dan joined, we had an offsite. Dan Wormer became CEO. Founders, me, Dan, and about two other people. Number one thing he said, we're going to create a company we're proud of the rest of our lives. That's our goal. Love it. Wasn't be on this list, be on that list. So what would make you proud? That's what we started with. It would make me proud if the people who worked here were proud to be here. And it, it was one of the great things in their life. They worked for NetApp. Customers who bought and partners. The day that we were voted the number one company to work for in America, 2009. Now, we've been voted number one in over 20 countries as an aside. But we were awesome. number one in America, 2009. I got a I got an email from the most powerful person on Wall Street at the time in tech. I just landed from Japan. I was in L.A. And he, he said, not at all surprised. I thought, what, what more can you say? So, so I knew inherently that I want. So, what did I want in a culture? I wanted a culture of people who wanted to be in a company. That's attitudes number one. I always say, if there's a better place for you and your family, go do it. You gotta want to be here. Number two, we gotta be honest with each other. You have something to say, say it in the meeting. There's no harm, no foul, no matter what you say. But you cannot walk outside the meeting and have another meeting about what you didn't like about the meeting. But the real thing that I added to this thing that I think people in NetApp all know, I started a saying, which is catch someone doing something right. I love it. People, Tell us what that is about. Well, people could take one thing away from this. So many companies have copied. You could do it within your group. You know, let's face it. If you work in a big company, they have a culture. You're not going to change the culture if you're AT&T or something. But your team has a culture. Your group has a culture. And so... I had been in companies where people always could tell you what's wrong and that group's not doing it and that group. And I said, listen, the enemy's on the outside, not on the inside. Now, if you have something to say with something's broken and you can tell us how to fix it, I'll have that conversation. But most importantly, if people are giving you their heart and their soul, I want to make sure they know that we care. So I started saying, catch someone doing something right. And everyone in NetApp knows I did three of them on the way here when I walked over here to give this talk, <laughs> which is... If you see someone do something extraordinary to help a person, to help a customer, help NetApp, to help a customer, to help a partner, or to help society, every single NetApp employee gets one week off to work for any charity they want. No questions asked. Wow, that's awesome. And I, well, what I ask is they send me a note to tell me about it. How, how did it affect you? How did it affect your life? How did it affect the people you helped? We have a guy named Dave Botterill. I hope he listed up in Canada. He's built orphanages in Mexico. He's brought all kinds of stuff to Haiti, he provides soccer balls and stuff for these people who have so little. Just And a lot of NetApp people go with it. But So catch someone doing something right. The reason I know that is someone called me and said, do you know what Dave Bottles? I picked the phone up and I call him. And now I know. And it's like viral culture because I'm telling other people about Dave. So I, I averaged over 10 calls a day for over 20 years. Um, and they're from all, it's secretary in Singapore. There was one in Houston. Guy said to me, you know, we had a fantastic seminar. The only time you notice the people who put on a seminar is if something screws up. <laughs> exactly. Hey, coffee's cold. Whoa, that kind of shit. So I said, 
they said, this woman took the food at the end. And we said, what are you going to do with all that? She took it to a homeless shelter. She wasn't trying to make a big deal out of it. She just felt they should not waste right. the two days of that food. He called me to say, I just think that's, that represents everything we're trying to do here. So I called her up. and But this goes on and on and on. And I, I, clearly, I'm not the only one doing it. And I don't want to be the only one doing it. But I feel like I owe it to everybody to do it. So yeah. today, I got a, I got a message right before I walked in. We have a thing, NetApp on NetApp. So it's running our own stuff on NetApp. One of our guys in IT went up to Edmonton, gave them a, a, a seminar on a fly late at night. It was early morning meeting. The customer wrote a letter saying it was so powerful to have him here as opposed to doing a webcast. And he said, would you mind thanking him? So I did that right before I walked in the door. The, the most common response was two. One is, who is this really? <laughs> <laughs> who, who is this really? And once we get past that. And then the second piece of it is, it's not about me. I have so many people on my team who have helped me. I'm just trying to pay it forward or pay it back one or the other. Think about the feeling that engenders. Yeah. A, someone cared enough to tell me. I cared enough to pick the phone up. It's not that hard. I just think paying attention to your people pays dividends that are off the charts. Just think of yourself. If people showed you cared, worst thing in the world is to go unnoticed. Yeah. Worst thing in the world is to be doing all kinds of stuff and no one cares. So let's turn that around. How are we going to show people we care? So this to me... and. Another principle of our culture, and I know you're going to have another segment of this, embracing change. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. Yeah. Staying the same, you're getting worse. Dr. John Cotter of Harvard, the most published professor at Harvard ever in the Harvard Business Review. I hired him for five years from that app when wow. we were doing really well. Okay. John said Southwest Airlines and us were the only two that had ever hired him. Actually, we were doing well. And he told me an interesting stat. 90% of companies that set out to change fail. How do you, how do you rate it? Work or not? No. The employees tell you, no. Why is that? Because they can't sustain a sense of urgency. Interesting. So, right? You think yeah. about your life and you try yeah. to change this. So, what, so why can't they sustain a sense of urgency? Most sense of urgency in companies is built around a burning platform. If we don't do this, we're screwed. Exactly. And sometimes that's true. And when it is true, you can say, you can't make that the overall strategy. You constantly keep people on edge who are screwed. It burns out. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So what's the opposite of that? What's the big opportunity? If we sacrifice for each other and we go through the, through the, all kinds of stuff together. Think about the military. I spoke a lot for the military. I spoke for the I spoke at West Point. I spoke for the Marines at Quantico during Fallujah. I spoke for the Mossad in Israel. That's a different story. That's an interesting story. But the imagine. point is they get this real well about if we're going to go through all this together. What's the big opportunity? Why are we here to fight? Mm -hmm. That's what you have to put in front of your team. Here's the big opportunity. We're going to ask everybody to do all kinds of things, but we're going for that. That's different than you do it or else you do it over screwed. Yeah, and I love that. And so, you know, regardless of where you are right now in your leadership journey, well, let's say, well, I, I'm here and we don't have a great culture. If you're the leader on that, you know, take the opportunity to make that change. Um, apologies to everyone. My Doberman just saw something walk by the window. So we're having a, a guard dog moment in the background. Apologies. That's Rockney, everybody. Uh -huh. well, let's, let's face it. No one's breaking in your house after hearing that. That, that is true. That is true. <laughs> well, that's, that's good. That's good. Rockney Stop. Mulligan is on guard today. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think, you know, what, what you said is wherever you are, then just take a time out and sit down and really reflect of what do we want this team to be? And I love what you said, because sometimes people's responses, well, we're part of this huge organization. I don't have the chance to change that. But within your unit, right, wherever you do have influence, take the time to step back and think about from a cultural perspective, from a values behavior perspective, what do we want to try to embody on a consistent basis? And, and to your point, Tom, start with valuing your people and what people bring and be intentional about communicating that the number one thing you control every day is your attitude you determine how the world's going to look at you i've yet to have anybody explain the value to me of a bad attitude (laughs) (laughs) exactly it's not helping you or anybody it's worked out for him doesn't happen so i mean if you're new to a company you can't you don't even know where the men's or ladies room is yet People value your attitude. When I ask you about anybody you know in work, the first thing you talk to me about is your attitude. So start off with you are going to commit. No matter what's happening in your personal life, you're coming to work with a good attitude. I've had people in NetApp say to me at a, a long ago at a new hire sales training. I, I talked to all of them when I was lived out there. And they say, how are you always in a good, good mood? I said, I quite honestly, I'm not. I mean, I have things going on in my life that could throw me off just like you. But when I come in here, I owe it to you to be in a good mood. I owe it to you to give my best. If I fly somewhere, I always say to people when I, when I before I go to a meeting, when I leave, how do you want them to feel? Mm-hmm. When I give a talk, you know I give a lot of big talks. I don't yeah. say, what do you want them to think? I'm not here to share facts. What do you want them to feel? So when you think about yourself, ask yourself a simple question. When people interact with you in, in your business, how do they feel about that interaction? How do they feel about you? Make sure you're, do, you're, you're carrying yourself in a way where people are going to say you can trust this person, person's got class, they've got integrity. They can do, the one thing you want them to say about you, if you want your career to rocket up, no matter what you give them, it comes back better than you expect. That's powerful. And, and the you thing I love about going up. The, the thing I love about attitude, right, is like you said, that's a choice. And you can choose that every time every time you step into a room. And when your team or company has a clear set of values, then it's easier for your people to choose the attitude that you know embodies what it is you're trying to accomplish, you know, from a strategic yeah. perspective. Well, start, start small. You control your attitude. Then, then if you get in leadership, you have a team that shares a common ethos and attitude. It, it, it folds up into a big company, but in most companies – you said before, your boss is who you care about. Now, you don't care about the CEO. You don't even know the CEO in most companies. <laughs> right. But you do know that your team, you want pride in that team. You want pride in that we're building something we'll be proud of. And as you move up, if you can cascade that down, you have a shot at doing something very special. So what's you've mentioned a couple things here. I think the the Tom talks were a powerful idea for leaders to start to incorporate and to communicate their strategy and the vision and the culture consistently to their team. Um, catch people doing something right. But what other do you have another strategy that you could share that leader for leaders to build, um, you know, to cultivate a powerful culture on their team? Any other strategies that you found effective? Well, I'll tell you one. Like when we got as a company, we were growing like crazy and big and. The four guys who ran the company, so you could parse this down to where you're at. We, we made a commitment that we'd have a dinner with no agenda once a month. Wow. And that became incredible. So CEO, me, I was president, and the two founders. And now I flew from Japan for these meetings. Dan could be in Rio. I mean, we, but we 100% would not miss 
it struck us that most of our interactions were in structured meetings. Okay. And so we so we got out of that environment and we took the time. What happens there? You build trust. You build true friendship because you know each other. So that when you have to make hard decisions, it's very different. Number one. Number two, ideas flow. And it's not because you had a, you, so how do, you, how do you think we're doing? You know, I think this is going good, but I'm a little worried about that. Really, let's talk about that. Take the company changed on that. I started doing that when I was at a much lower level. Whatever team I was on, you got to look around and say, Who's, who can help me drive this thing? Who do I trust and who do I want to, to pull into my circle? But I got off-site and I spent quality time. I did it when I was running sales. I've done it even when I was other companies. A lot of people don't have a personal relationship with the people around them. They want that structure. I, that's not my thing. My, I can still make hard decisions on anything I have to make hard decisions on, but I wanted to make sure that I have time in front of people that I trust to brainstorm and to build those relationships. And that takes a commitment of time. People say, well, you know, it's hard to do that because I have kids and all that. All this stuff's hard, but at the end of the day, it pays off. Yeah, I think, you know, and the fascinating thing about NetApp, you sort of mentioned this earlier, right? You've been repeatedly named as one of the best places to work by Fortune magazine. You know, how does a company achieve that as consistently as you guys have? Um, you know, the, the yeah. things that you do on a micro level as the leader, but how do you know, talk us through that a little bit more. Well, let me tell you the story about these great places to work. So we started in 19, excuse me, 2002, we entered it for the first time. Now, this is something that's done on a global basis. But you could do it. Today, we were voted uh, eighth best place to work in Japan today. Awesome. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I came out this morning. So top 10 is a pretty big deal. You talk about all companies, yeah. right? Japan, China. We voted number one in France one year. How crazy is that? Wow. Anyway, <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> back up. Back up. We're about American companies. But our, our thought was people kept saying, you have a great culture. Our stock had gone crazy. Anybody can have a great culture. The question is, how does, what happens when you're not doing great? You know, in, in business and life, you find out if you have a friend when you got a problem. And, mm -hmm. and oftentimes, you'll find out people you expect to step up don't. People you never thought would do, and your relationship changes forever. So the essence of our culture is we want to be that company that absolutely will step up. If you know you got a problem, it's technology, storage. We're going to be there. So we entered Great Place to Work in 2002. Because we don't want to say we're a great place to work. We wanted outsiders. What they do is they take a, a um, poll of your employees, anonymous poll, and people don't say it's going great if it's not. Right. Face it. So the, we didn't want, number one, so we wanted to hear what they had to say, and we wanted to do it globally. We didn't want to be that tech firm that we think all well, the brains are in Silicon Valley and everything rolls out from there. So we wanted to know. How did they feel about us in India? How did they feel? Are we a great place to work there? Not just yeah. cool. So the first one we did, we were voted the eighth, uh, excuse me, we voted the 42nd best company in America to work for. We were like, wow, we were expecting to make that. What we did it for is because they guarantee you feedback that you can act upon. And oh, by the way, a lot of companies don't enter this because they don't want that feedback because the employees all go, what are we going to do about it? Right, exactly. We, Put sort of puts them on the line to actually make make a change or adjustment or at least pay attention exactly. to it. Yeah. First, you got to reveal the results. <laughs> People, are, that's right. That does. That's that's no good. Then you go, yeah, okay. You don't want to keep saying this. You got to do something about it. So, the feedback was actually extraordinarily helpful because you have some blind spots, but you know you don't know that that's how people feel. 
So that was 2002. And then, two, then we started getting the top 10 almost every year. And then, as I said, I landed, <laughs> I landed in L.A. That's kind of a funny story. From Japan. Might have, you know, be a little tired. 14-hour flight. And my phone blows up. And uh, there it is with a number one company in America to work for. Of all the things I've ever happened in my life. And they said to me, could you go on television right now? Fox Business News in L.A. I'm like, oh, just what I was hoping. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do after a 14-hour yeah. flight. It was going to call me for that today. That's awesome. <laughs> but I'm thinking, how even I can't screw that up, right? Number one place to work. How easy. So I show up, and I've done a lot of interviews where you do it in New York, where you're looking out at the street and everybody's waving and stuff. And I've done it in San Francisco. You got the, the bay behind you. Here I am in a, a room with a black light. It's all black with a white light. So they're going to be talking in New York. I can't see what they put on the screen. They have that tape delay to make sure you sound stupid. <laughs> so what's your name? Five seconds later. Tom Mendoza. Oh, my God. The guy's a moron. That kind of thing. You've seen those interviews. So yeah, I'm going to exactly. be that guy with 14 hours flight jet lag. But again, how hard can this be? Number one place. And... They're going 10, 9, the guy says in my ear, she's going negative. And I, I saw laughing. I think they're talking to somebody else. They go, Mr. Mendoza can hear me. I'm like, going negative? How do you go negative on this? So, boom, you're on the air. And this woman says to me, Mr. Mendoza, thanks for being here. Why is it that Wall Street does not believe in that? And I start laughing. And she goes, you think that's funny? And I said, yeah, I think it's funny. She, I said, we just were voted the number one company in America to work for, saying it because she may not. I don't know which way she's going with it. Right. And, and you start with that question. And she said, well, as you can see, and she knows I can't, by the way. And they had up there that I think it was 12 out of 15 analysts following our stock and a hold on the stock. Okay. So she says, how do you explain it? I said, oh, I'm so happy you asked. This really isn't that hard to understand. Our stock's up over 60% in the last 120 days. We're up over 100% a year. I'd hold it too. So what they want to do is they're embarrass you. Then you look stupid. They move on. Now she looks stupid. So she's like shuffling scribbling. Oh, yeah. So she goes, one more, one more question. And the guys outside are laughing because they knew that this woman was not, nobody liked this lady. And so... Because that was her thing, embarrass people. And so she goes, one more question. What keeps you up at night? Now, you got nothing as an interviewer. If you said that to me, you got nothing if you could come with that. Exactly. So, that's not a question. I said, I honestly don't think that's the right question. And if you ever, what was that one where the girl's head went around in circles? The Exorcist. Yes. She, yep. she, look, I got, she got all, and she goes, and she leaned forward. She goes, oh, you don't think that's the right question? I said, no, I don't. She goes, what do you think the right question is? I said, what gets you up in the morning? Oh, I love it. I love it. You get up in the morning excited to do what you're going to do that day. You're going to have a lot of great nights. If you don't, you won't. Back to you, Bob. So <laughs> the end of the day, it's so Why do you care? Why do you do yeah. a best place to work? I want the people with around the world to think NetApp's a great place to work for. I want the people who buy from us to go, NetApp's a great place to buy. If you're a great place to work for, I believe you're a great place to buy from. Yeah, I want to buy from good people son. where, well, I buy from where people are excited that I'm buying from. You can tell when people are excited. If they like what they're doing, I like doing business with them. If they're flat, they don't care, I don't want to do business with them. So, 
focusing on our people, focusing on our culture has paid dividends. As I said to you, Amber, you know, we just had our 20th, we had our 25th anniversary last year. 20, in the, you know, NASDAQ 20th, uh, 20 years on the NASDAQ. We've made all kinds of lists. I think these things are all interrelated. Absolutely. I don't think one's separate from the other. That's powerful. And I think, so again, last episode, right, we talked about the importance of a leader to, to know yourself, right? Know thyself as a leader. Know thyself as a company. I think if, if you can really, I want you to pause for a second and reflect on everything that Tom shared with us today, because it's all generated, right, of why do you do what you do, right? That sort of intrinsic, what gets you up in the morning? And when you know that, like how powerful of a driver of that is. But Tom, from your perspective, why do you think it's critical for leaders who wish to lead their teams to success to really grasp onto this concept of the critical importance of know thyself? Well, number one, I think you have to be authentic. I think if you really think about someone that you would follow, that you're really happy to follow, you know this person, they're not putting on something else, and and you can trust them. So you're authentic. So you got to know who you are to be authentic. Right. Number one. Number two, I also think it's important to, to be vulnerable. Um People who put that shield in front of them, that's one way of leading. Yeah. You know, we we never had offices in that. We had an open, you know, even at, when people come visit, they'd always see my cubicle was the same size as the other guys. We had little conference rooms you could go to. We did that so you'd walk around. Yeah. Right? So so you got to, you want to be open. I wanted people to approach me. I don't want to be, that's the whole point about the story in the cafeteria. So you start off with, what, what do you, what do you believe and then you got to live those values. Mm-hmm. So you can't, I'd never let people make coffee for me. Never. I wouldn't say to the admin, go get me coffee. I would never do it. I'd get up and go get my coffee. I would, you know, I wouldn't do things that I wouldn't ask someone. Else. If I wouldn't do it, you know, why should I ask her to do it? So if you know who you are and you're comfortable in your skin and, and you can say, this is what I believe and this is how I act. And people can count on that. I think, again, I, I'm not hard to read, and that's good when you're interviewing, when you're leading. People know what to expect from you, and they honestly trust you and believe in you because they, there's no other side that they're not seeing. I think that's important. Yeah, I think it's really important. And a lot of a lot of leaders, you know, a lot of individuals are, are not comfortable with allowing other people in, right, to even share their own thoughts, to allow, right. you know, to even listen to anybody else's perspective on things. And they get really defensive and really insecure about their position and what needs to happen and why. So it's a, I think it's a really, uh, it's, it's a downfall to teams and organizations to have that separation or the sense of, you know, you have to protect, protect, protect and hold on really tight to everything you have so you don't lose it. And I feel like, you know, from just hearing you describe the culture that you've had it's been a very open-handed open lens open floor plan layout literally in your offices and how much um, freedom that's generated to allow people's ideas and creativity and contributions to really add to the culture and to the strategic objectives of what what NetApp is here to do you know that's 100 percent right I, I brought up candor as something that we pushed on right at the beginning let me talk about candor for a minute why is candor important? So, what is candor? Candor is saying the truth at the moment we can do something about it. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta not be insulting, but you gotta say I don't agree with this plan or whatever it is. If people know that their ideas count 
and we're listening. You just hit on a key point. You're listening to your employee base. So a lot of the best ideas we've ever had come from people closest to the problem. Absolutely. They're not sitting in a room with eight of us. They're out doing the work next to the customer. So if they feel like they can give us an idea that we will listen to, now it doesn't mean we'll accept, but we'll always give them feedback. I had a guy come to me very, very early. Why don't we advertise a Super Bowl? I said, do you think that's a good idea? I do. I said, what does that cost? I don't know. Hmm. I think you should know that if you're going to tell me I should do that. Oh, okay. I said, well, it's, it's three and a half million dollars for 30 seconds. Oh. I said, what's our marketing budget? I don't know. Huh. Well, that's, our marketing for the year is seven million globally. So let me ask you one more time. Would you spend three and a half million on a 30 second spot that only seen in America, basically? of a $7 million budget. Would you make that decision? Oh no, I wouldn't make that decision either. So, but here's what, I, here's what I would tell you. You need to know that stuff if you're gonna come in. If you're gonna come with ideas, you gotta be fact-based. So I'm not being mean, but I'm just telling you, but I, I wouldn't just act. But secondarily, let's say they came with three ideas and that person did. The third one was an idea. It wouldn't have been the way I would have approached it. I thought it was an interesting idea. And I, I like this person, by the way. Anytime, I mean, I spend time with people and I'm candid with people that I like because I want to develop them. But he came in with an idea and I said, do you really believe you could pull that off? And I said to him, this isn't the way I'd go about it. He said, I do. It had to do with our education, how we educate our new employees. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you that assignment, which is what he wanted. I said, I'm going to fence off the risk. I'm going to check in with you in 90 days. If it's going well, we'll check in 180 days. You have this much money. Um, but it's yours now. I'm depending on you to come through. That person, if I had said to them, here's what you will do, that's one thing. Yeah. Now it's theirs, and they wanted it, and they ran with it, and it came way better than I would have dreamt, and guess what? It was done a different way than I thought. If So what happens when you have a culture that hears that story? Gee, if I came with an idea, not, they might not accept them all, but if I do come with one, that they agree with, I'll have the opportunity to do something about it and I can help this company. So what does that really engender? At five o'clock at night, I said before, people can either say, look, those eight guys are gonna make all the decisions anyway. I'm gonna go to the gym. Or they could say, even at the gym, their minds on what could we do better as a company? What could, yeah. what could I help? That's what candor got us. It saved us, created new business opportunities. When people don't feel like they can share the truth, and I think most companies when I give this talk, the employees say to me, oh, my God, I wish we had candy here. I had an executive executive say to me, oh, I think his employees told me they had no candy. He said, I think we have candy. I say anything I want. That's not <laughs> I don't think you, you know, got the point there, big guy. <laughs> yeah, I think you missed the point, big man. That's right. <laughs> I think they might have been two-way here. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, the other thing that we talked about last episode, Tom, was mindfulness or, you know, learning how to be present in a moment so that we can respond to situations and not just react volatilely or emotionally. Um, and, you know, it's an important mental skill for leaders. Can you sort of share your thoughts or insights on this topic in general? Say that again. I'm sorry. My mind roam for a second. <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. See, so we're talking about mindfulness and being present in the moment. I in the moment. <laughs> This is a great example. This is like live coaching, right? This is what I do with our players when we're talking about focus. And then all of a sudden you ask a question. Um, 
So mindfulness, right? Mindfulness is about, again, learning to be present in the moment so that we can respond to situations and not just react volatilely. So what's, yep. what's, give us your thoughts or insights on this topic of mindfulness and maybe its importance for leaders to, to understand or leverage. I think it's incredibly important and it's very, very hard. And I find it, I found it much harder to do in my personal life than in my business life. Why and the so reason I, can share? well, because I was, for a long time in my life, I was so wrapped up in whatever I'm doing in business, because most of it NetApp, that it was very easy for me to stay in the moment as we're making critical decisions. I, I really didn't have, a, in front of a sales opportunity, a lot of my, the strategies are, is a secondary part, but I think the strength that I have, if I have a strength in business, is that I can zero in and stay in the moment and keep everybody in the moment to make something happen. Awesome. But what I struggled with on a personal side is I'd go home and I'd still be thinking of work. So we're having a conversation. I got my phone out and I'm looking at something. And, you know, and for I heard a number of times, listen, can we have a conversation? Are we having a conversation? And, you know, I didn't take it that seriously. And then I realized that it's critical on both to have a a real personal relationship. As you know, I have a little, little my first son now, two years old. And he's adorable, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. But, but I got to stay in a moment with him, as you can imagine. But I don't want to miss this. I don't want to, I don't want these days to go by. Everybody always tells me how fast it goes. And when I'm home with my wife and doing personal time, I really want to make sure that I'm in the moment of that moment, yeah, at that time. That's something that I had to learn is all I'm saying. And to your listeners who are out there right now, I would say to you, think about at work, when you are when you have a challenge, not just when everything's up on fire, in general, do you stay in the moment, are you organized, do you know exactly what you're going to do? I, I would guess the answer is probably yes to most people who are being successful, it can roam, but when you're on your personal time, your self-development, your relationship time, equally important, if you are happy with yourself on that. Yeah, I, I did a, a uh, on YouTube, there's a thing on goal setting. I changed my mind in eight, uh, my life in 1989. I was at Stanford for their executive program, and there was a study from Yale that said 90% of people in the world, of people who have done spectacular things, have time-bound measurable goals. I thought that was interesting. Less than 10% of people have time-bound measurable goals. Wow. Wow. So I thought it, I didn't have, not given you by a company driven by you. So I said to myself, you know, I thought I was doing well, but against what? So I came up with a system. I, it's on Forbes.com. It's got a few hundred thousand views. Just my name on Forbes.com and also on on uh, YouTube. But the, the essence of it was this. I set three personal and three professional goals every 90 days. I started wow. then. changed my entire life. And I started with personal. set three personal goals. Why? Because if you feel good about yourself as a person, you act different, you walk into a room different, people react to you different. So the personal quote, to set my personal goals, a question, remember, it has to be measurable. So I'm going to be a good person. It's not a goal. <laughs> I'm going to lose weight. It's not a goal. I'm going to lose whatever pounds. That's a goal. So the simple question I say, if I do what, do I feel good about me? Do I feel good? And that's what I said. Now, remember, it's gonna, 90 days, I'm going to stick to it. Three things. By definition, if I do them, I'm going to feel good about me. And then I do, 
and, and, and those can vary. They can be very personal. Uh, but I don't share those with people yeah. because you're not, you're not trying to prove to people you can make goals. You're trying to... I'll give you a simple one. My first one I ever put was, I'm going to get on a treadmill three times a week for 30 minutes. I hadn't been working out. I was traveling like crazy. I convinced myself I didn't have time to work out. One of those. means yeah. I didn't have a party. And so, so just put aside, that's what I had as a personal goal. And I'll come back to what I do at the end. So I have three goals. And then I do three professional. And on the professional, I ask myself, if I, what am I going to do to make an impact okay. in the next 90 days? We're not here to fit in. I'm going to make an impact. Yeah, preach. Yeah, and I, and I share them with my boss or my internal customers. When I was president, I had the head of sales. And I would say, here's the three things I'm going to do to make an impact. And I remember one was I was going to go to China to help out the sales organization because they were asking. And the guy running sales said, I appreciate if you didn't do that one. I said, really? He said, we have all kinds of people going through China right now. You've been there, you know, not that long ago. Could I, could I pick a goal for you? I said, sure. He said, could I send you to four or five cities that you haven't been to in a long time, maybe Seattle, Kansas City, because they're not in the mainstream what we're doing, and we'll host dinners around you giving talks on leadership. It'll change. Done. Now I got six goals, two steps left. Number one, I, I, I make it an appointment I won't break. So, okay. and. Now, for instance, if somebody says to you tomorrow, Amber, can you meet me in the office at 7 o'clock? You just put one of your goals to work out, 7 o'clock. You go, absolutely. The other answer is, let's say that's an appointment. You know, I have an appointment. I'll break it if you tell me I, it's urgent, but I do have an appointment. Now we'll do it at 10.30. Okay. Nice. But yeah. our natural reaction is to quickly move off. And then the, and before I do that, I, I read all those six out loud. And I ask myself one question. If I do that, will I be proud of myself? And I'll never forget on that 30 minutes, I made it 40 minutes. It didn't make like seven days a week, seven, you know, two hours. I just quit. But as soon as you get to minute 31, your life changes. Remember, it's written goals. you got to write it down. And for me, what happened is I started raising the bar every time. Every 90 days, I started to say, okay, I got that. But now I think I can do this. Nobody that I know is socialized to think of themselves when they think of the word greatness. Nobody. You know, if, if I got, if I came home after college, had a job, and didn't ask my parents to move in, yeah, oh, <laughs> it was not. It's a win. Know, it's a win. My parents both, both had sixth grade educations. We didn't have anybody go to college, but my parents wow. So to think of greatness comes, funny story, when I donated the money to Notre Dame, you get a lot of whack jobs come out of the woodwork when you publicly give money. Yeah, I can imagine. And so I got all these letters. I actually kept them. I don't know if where they are now, but it said, Dear Tom, we've never met. But, you know, I just ran over my daughter in the driveway. That was actually a letter. For $50,000, my life, could, I could fix her up. You know, otherwise she'll never walk in. You know, bing, 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 every every kind of letter. We've never met. $100,000. I had a guy stop wow. me in the rest of South Bend, Indiana, saying, I know it's not a lot to you, but fifty grand would mean a lot to me. I'm like, who are you? Wow. So, That's so the Yeah, I, I got a zillion. But the funniest one, this woman sends me a note. Before I tell you this story, I just want to tell you I was a very impressive kid. I was extraordinarily impressive. And this, this story will prove it. She, she writes me a letter or an email and she says, Dear Tom, I don't know if you remember me, but we went to fifth grade together. Now, I know I went to fifth grade because <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I did. I 
I almost sure I went to high school. I know uh, I went to Notre Dame. You know, it kind of gets foggy. Yeah, exactly. But 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 fifth grade, like all I want to know is what sob story is she going to say and how much money. That's all I was looking for. Yeah. And she said, I just read about a guy in the Long Island Newsday with your name, who appears to be your age or our age, from our town, who gave all this money to Notre Dame. You should meet him. You might be related. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing she was sure of it was not it was guy. not you I, I was spectacularly impressive so oh if, I told, if I told her that I was a greeter at Walmart she would have gone good for you yeah <laughs> much more better believable than better than I would have thought for you so at the end of the day I realized at that point in 1989 and I could have looked at my life I was running half the country for a company that was public I said, God, this is way more than I would have accomplished. People kept telling me that. But I actually took a step back and I said, you know, you only have one go at this thing. I want to go for greatness, whatever that means. And one thing I would tell you that I'm absolutely sure of is you'll never regret something you did that didn't work out. The mm -hmm. things that you look back in your life that you will regret are things you didn't go for. Yeah. Risks you didn't take. Things you always want to do and never did. You know, when I was growing up, all our neighbors, you know, those lower middle class neighbors would talk about what they would do when they retire. Talked to some people from that town later because I moved away when I went, never came back. But most of those people either passed away, illness, never got to do the things. So I believe if you, if it's important to you enough, do it. It's important enough, live it. And that's living in the moment. That's the mindset of, yeah. I'm not going to delay all this stuff. I, if it's important to me, I'm going to do it. It affected my life in a spectacular way. I love it. I love it. Could you give one maybe strategy of, you know, I do think it's hard sometimes for really, um, you know, high powered or driven individuals. And if you're working towards a big goal, you know, it is it's sometimes hard to make that transition. I mean, I find myself, I got a ton of energy, right? And so, and that's not always necessary in my home life in the evenings right, with my husband. What is a strategy that you've found right. to sort of make that transition into home at night that might be useful for our listeners to, to maybe start trying and practicing? Well, I think one of the things that is critical is that you're both on the same page as to what you're doing at work and what it takes both ways. Yeah. So, you know, like before I accepted promotions, let's say it evolved a move. Let's say it just is. I knew it was going to be more hours. Let's say I knew it was going to be a ton of travel. We had a conversation or I do that now with my wife, Ty. We have a conversation. Is this how do you feel about this? And if the answer is, I really am not comfortable with that, I, I need to know that, and we need to talk it through. And I, frankly, if she's not comfortable, I'm not doing it. Right. So, but it's, I think a big mistake is made by people is they have what they think is, this is what I got to do. The other person may not have bought into that at all. They kind of did, but now it's much more than they thought. Another, another side to that, Amber, is people say, I really want to be vice president of sales of an organization. Just use a title. Right. And I'll say and I'll say to them, in the, people in the organization, what do you think? Tell me how that job is day to day. What do you think? And they give it to me, and I say, well, how would you feel about 150 thousand miles a year in a plane? And they go, oh, 150 thousand miles. I I like to travel, but 150. Well, honestly, I never flew under 250 thousand. Wow. When I was head of sales, it it needed me to do it. It's the way I think it's done. If you're not going to travel, you. Should, but my point is. Don't go for something that 
if you understand the requirements. In fact, one of the things I encourage people to do when they're thinking about their career is talk to people that they admire who have a job they think they'd like to aspire to and find out what it entails in that job. And they may go, you know what, that's exactly what I want to do. Or they may go, who? Not so much. Yeah, exactly. But, but you don't want to say, I want that, and not understand that. You don't want to have a commitment at work that your spouse or your, your partner um, honestly doesn't buy into. And I think that, that leads you to not good things. If you, But the opposite is true, too. If you have someone who totally gets what you're doing and you get what they're doing and you have each other's support, you can do incredible amounts. And, and if you're doing something you really believe in, you want to do, and you have support, it doesn't feel like work. Exactly. Yeah. If you put me in a toll booth for four hours, that would be work. <laughs> Think of all the people you could meet. Oh, my God. Yeah. How are you doing today? Hey. The lines would be long if you ran into Tom Mendoza's uh, toll line road, ladies and gentlemen. Wait, go to number three. Exactly. <laughs> well, Tom, this has been an absolute pleasure. I feel like I, I want to keep you all day here and just keep keep getting insights from you. But we're going to wrap up here. Um, yep. We really, really appreciate your time. But, you know, one of the things that I believe deeply in is that you have to lead in first if you're going to effectively lead out. And so at the end of all of our interviews with our guests, I, I'd like to end with these two questions just to get you sort of your insights on this. So first of all, what does the phrase lead to win mean to you in terms of leading yourself and that element of lead in? I think lead, you have, to, you have to lead from the front. You know, I, I don't believe in sending someone else on a mission I wouldn't go on. So the first thing I want to do is I want to make sure, like, for instance, if, if we're challenged and we don't seem to be selling in a particular area, I want to go there and I want to lead and I want to go on the calls. I want to be on everything and come back and say, here's why it's not working, as opposed to, evaluating the other people I've sent on the mission and say, gee, they don't seem to be as good as I thought. So leading from the front and lead in is personal frontline leadership is what I admire the most. I don't don't admire people who sit in a room and think they know everything. You know, I always tell people, you don't want to be a spreadsheet leader where you go, hey, gee, this is, Gee, Joe, you're not on your goals. Hey, Tom, thanks for stopping by. I hadn't looked at it. I mean, what does that do? As opposed to, Joe, you're not on your goals. Can I do something to help you? How about you and I go make some calls together? How about we sit down and look at your accounts and see if there's a strategy I can come with? So you've got to be confident enough in leading from the front uh, and willing to lead from the front and expose yourself to the problems as opposed to sit back and evaluate, my opinion. Yeah, no, I think that's really powerful. And then, you know, the phrase lead to win, right? What, is that, what does that phrase lead to win mean to you as it relates to your leadership? I think there's two parts of leadership that really mean a lot to me, which is aspiration and inspiration. And lead to win, you need, no team will ever aspire to greater things than the leader, none. Yeah. So, and I think most people in life and in business aspire to love. This is my point about me before 1989. Yeah. I could have very well said, this is more than I ever expected. Why do that? You got to continue. This is my point about pushing people when they're doing well. So the first part about leading to win is you got to get people to aspire to do things they possibly never thought they could do. And when they do, they look back and go, oh, my God, that's how we got here. Let me talk about the concept of inspiration real quickly. It is my belief that it's offered the least when it's needed the most. Mm-hmm. It's offered the most when it's needed the least. 
So you just won a game. You just had a sporting event. You won. Everybody calls you. After the second or third call, that's no longer inspiration. It's just, if nobody calls you, that's no good. But the fact of the matter is, so where is inspiration? Inspiration when I'm in the middle of the fight. I'm struggling. Yeah. Now somebody calls you and goes, Amber, I know you're struggling with this. Is there anything I could do? I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you. So I try to use inspiration in the right way. This is my point about my calls. I, I actually gave a, a talk to our engineering team. I said, how many of you have heard of catch someone doing something right? A lot of hands went up, but I said, for whatever it's worth, you've asked me to make less calls than any other group. So I, I would draw two conclusions. One is you're not doing anything you should be thankful for. They're like, what's number two? A guy in the front said that. I said, number two is you think I only want to call you when you've won. Well, in a lot of job functions, there's no win. By the time you get done, you're on to the next one. There's no yeah. natural conclusion. I said, I said, each of you, 1,500 people in the audience, what I, what I want to inspire people is to call them when they need it. So to find, think of someone who's a perfect NetApp employee, someone we're all proud of, but they're struggling right now. Send me their name and why, and I will call. I made 1,500-plus calls. Didn't do it in a day, but I just charted it out, and it was one of the most incredible things. So today, about 50% of my calls, the concept has morphed from catch someone doing something right to let's, let's lift someone who needs some help. Wow. And I think that's a very powerful way of leading, a very powerful way of leading a team. And at the end of the day, that leads to a lot of winning, right? On the individual satisfaction level, on your engagement levels, and just on the long-term perspective that an individual is going to have with a company and in their own lives, you know, and, that, and that's powerful. Tom, I just want to thank you so much for being with us. This was incredible, um, aspirational and inspirational, and uh, <laughs> so very powerful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Amber. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Building Championship Mindsets, the podcast. Your host, Dr. Amber Selkin, with our featured guest, Mr. Tom Mendoza, the vice chairman of NetApp. Again, thank you, Tom. And from the locker room to the boardroom, we want to challenge you to continue building your championship mindset and leading to win. Brightview Medical is a patient-oriented, medical healthcare organization with goals to change healthcare as we know it. By understanding the wasteful and costly healthcare system in place today, Brightview is able to create a unique opportunity that revolutionizes patient doctor visits, cuts back on costs, and increases patient satisfaction. They house all of their specialty physicians, CDC-level labs, and state-of-the-art technology in one building, providing a one-stop patient-centered environment which is unparalleled in today's medical field. At Brightview Medical, they don't just practice medicine, they perform it.